Are listening to another episode of How to Rock Virtual Engagements, brought to you by Jabba.io. I'm your host, Alistair Davis. So why am I doing a podcast on virtual engagements? Well, effective virtual engagements can increase your quality of life and significantly improve your income. This has happened to me, and I want to share all these virtual tips and tricks from experts around the world with you. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of How to Rock Virtual Engagements. We have Professor Wayne Barker on today's episode, all the way from Michigan. He's a professor of management and organizations at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. He's the author of All You Have to Do is Ask, How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success. And he's the co-founder and board member of Give and Take Incorporated. A fun fact, for a milestone wedding anniversary, he surprised his wife by getting them to be guests on the Emerald Live Food Network show in New York. Currently, he's the Robert P. Tomei Professor of Business Administration. Welcome on the show, Wayne. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> Excellent. So you, you're a sailor. So you sailed from the Great Lakes all the way around the eastern U.S. coast as well. Well, we've sailed throughout all of the Great Lakes. Um, it, they're like small seas or small yep. oceans. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, that we plan to do that. In fact, we've joined an organization um, that's devoted to supporting sailors and boaters who want to circumnavigate the eastern U.S. So you go out through Chicago, eventually down the Mississippi, yep. to the Gulf of Mexico, around Florida. You can come in at New York or Nova Scotia or various ways. And, uh, and uh, that's our plan um, when we retire. <laughs> that sounds like a, a good plan to me. Absolutely. Yeah, we loved it. We love going boating. And uh, it is one of the great advantages that the state of Michigan is right in the center of the Great Lakes. So we're kind of a peninsula yeah. surrounded by the by three of the Great Lakes. And so yeah. it's really been wonderful. And our little our son, who's now 18, um, started sailing with us when he was five. Okay. Uh, so he's he's quite the sailor himself. Excellent. My son's four and he makes these boats on his bed with his duvet and he says, I need to get into his boat the whole time. So it looks like he's kind of angling to be a sailor. Who knows? <laughs> That's right. It sounds like it. For our listeners, I reached out to you because I read your article that you wrote on psychology today, how to connect meaningfully in a virtual meeting. I thought it was a really good article. And so I sent you an email and said, hey, Wayne, enjoyed your article and you're on would you like to come on my show? And, and here we are. How's lockdown been for you and virtual meetings? Have you applied what you've, what you've written? Uh, absolutely. In fact, that article in Psychology Today grew out of my experience being in dozens and dozens of different uh, virtual meetings. So we went on lockdown and our university closed uh, when the semester was still, still open. We were still teaching. So I finished my courses virtually we all switched at light speed and, you know, had a whole variety of different experiences and we're preparing for remote teaching in the fall. We don't know yet if it will be hybrid, yep. you know, some in-person, some remote, but there's certainly going to be a remote uh, component to it. And so it was interesting being in a lot of different meetings and, you know, as being an expert in this, in this area, you know, some of them go really well, some of them don't go very well. And I started thinking about, 
well, what was the difference between the ones who went well and the ones that didn't? And started to see some patterns. And I thought, you know, maybe others would benefit from these observations, these 10 guidelines as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I enjoyed all of them. So there's 10. And uh, I will reference the article in the podcast when we publish it. But what was the top four for you? Well, number one would be video on. Everyone has to show themselves. I was in uh, so many of these where a half or more of the people were not showing a video of themselves. And so who knows if they were even really there or if they were doing something else. And it's like, you know, if, if you want to be present, and one way that you're present is by having your video on. So that, that's something I always encourage. Sure. Now, sometimes people run into technical problems or glitches. Mm -hmm. They don't have adequate bandwidth. You know, you want to take that into account, but that's an important one. Yep. Uh, another important one is to acknowledge the reality that we're in. Uh, I was in so many meetings, uh, particularly like business meetings, where they were conducted as if we weren't in the middle of a global pandemic. Right. And it makes people feel kind of disconnected. Um, it denies the reality that they're experiencing. So at least acknowledging something about that. Mm -hmm. um, so you said four. So there'd be uh, two others I would point out. One would be uh, to make it personal, yeah. that there should be some opportunity for people to connect on a personal level. And we've done a whole variety of things. Doesn't mean the whole meeting's taken up with that, but could be sharing something uh, about your family. And some of the ones that worked really well, people would detach their camera or they would move their laptop camera around and kind of show the environment that they were yeah. in. So yeah, I'm yeah. at home in Ann Arbor with my study. And, you know, people would show different things, pictures on the wall, and that really humanized it. And then the other was to always find an opportunity to learn something new. And it could be a round robin. It could be someone assigned that for the next meeting, you're going to come up with some interesting, fun facts, something that we could all learn from. Uh, yeah. In some meetings, we've actually had short presentations about a whole variety of topics. Okay. Those sound like uh, very easy and actionable things to do. And in terms of learning things new, you've recently written a book and it was published this year called All You Have to Do is Ask. What inspired you to write about that topic? Well, the book was published this year uh, in January. So it's a, it's a new book. Um, but the origin, I can trace back 21 years, if you can believe that, mm -hmm. uh, to an activity that um, Cheryl Baker and I created called the Reciprocity Ring. Okay. And it's an activity that enables people to ask for and give help to one another. It's been used all this. It's a group activity. It's been done all over the world, many different languages, different countries, different cultures. And it really taps into the natural generosity that people have. But when we, we would start doing this activity, I always started it the same way years ago with a little lecture about the importance of giving, of helping, of being generous. But, you know, I found that that was rarely the problem people were incredibly generous. Yep. The real problem was getting people to ask for what they need. It turns out that people really struggled with, you know, what am I, what am I going to ask for? And the thing is that you can't, you can't help anyone unless you know what they need and you don't know what they need until they tell you if they yep. say something about it. So I shifted and really focused on this idea of, okay, well, how do you help people get better at asking for what they need, figuring out what they need, why they need it, how to formulate it as an effective request, in what kind of form do you ask a person? Do you ask a group? Do you ask it on LinkedIn? How do you ask? Where do you ask? Uh, and over time, with that initial insight, I did a lot of research, collected other tools. So the book is very much a how-to book. It's full of all these different ways that you can 
enact this process of asking for what you need, things, tools that will help an individual, to help a team, or help an entire organization. It went all the way back to that, you know, that activity we created 21 years ago, and we're still using now. We've created a, a digital version of it as well. And in this environment where people are working remotely, it seems to be well-timed. That, that's the thing. People need to ask for help. They, they need to show some vulnerability. You know, one of the things that I've learned about this podcast and talking to people in this space is that empathy is a key muscle that you have to exert or use in a virtual context. You need to understand how people are, how they're feeling. And as a speaker or participant, also show a little bit of vulnerability to open up that, to open the kimono, so to speak, so that you can increase that connection between, let's say, the meeting holder and a participant, just that, that little bit of connection. And I guess mm-hmm. it kind of builds on what you're saying about asking and, and saying, I need help. Absolutely. And it's, um, it's often the leader, the team leader or the organization leader that struggles with it the most because they feel like they should be the, you know, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. But the fact is that everyone has needs. And as a leader, if you want people to freely ask for and give help to one another, share resources, cooperate, you got to do the same. You've got to set the example. You need to make requests for what you need as well. Yeah, and I, and I like your point on the top 10 or the 10 that you wrote. You talked about gentle mandatory participation. So asking people to get involved, and it's for their benefit. You know, please, I need you to help me get involved because if you get involved in this meeting or this interaction, it's going to make it more valuable, more fun, more interactive for everybody. Yeah, there were some meetings I was in where they were, they were not actively facilitated, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen these as well. And there were a lot of very awkward pauses and people didn't know what to say. Then they were talking over each other. You know, turn-taking is hard enough when you're sitting around a table face-to-face, but turn-taking through Zoom or some sort of remote platform is much harder. You know, yeah. so that's one of the reasons why you need active facilitation. It's also a way of bringing people out, yeah. of inviting their participation, of valuing them as a participant in whatever you're doing. I was talking to a, a customer, exactly. I was talking to a customer the other day and he said that they were thinking that they need an objection handler. So you have the facilitator, the chief facilitator, and you might have a note taker, but you probably need somebody who can handle objections because if you, what they found is sitting around a table, if a customer objects or if, there's a, if it's a difficult meeting, usually colleagues stand up for each other and they go, well, I'll handle this. I'll, I'll take this question. But in a virtual context, Nobody can see the other person and nobody can see the colleagues. So they all just sit there and go, okay, uh, who's going to take this one? Right. Absolutely. You know, that's one place where virtual tools can be really helpful. Uh, So we found that uh, the chat function is really good, particularly in a large meeting where people can pose questions. And what we found is that people pose better questions when they have to think about it and they've got to type it out. And the answers are also more thoughtful because you've got to think it through before you actually write it and put it in the chat. Where yeah. sometimes if you're just spouting off verbally, you know, you might not express a question very well or the answer yeah. will be incomplete. Yeah. And also you have a running record. So I was in one committee meeting and this was virtual, of course. Um, and we had questions from the participants. We were presenting as a committee to a large group. And there were some people who were 
you know, had questions, we answered them when we could. But when we ran out of time, we said, okay, we have all the other questions and we will come up with a written response to all those questions and then send it to everyone. So everyone was taken into account. Everyone voiced their objections or their concerns mm -hmm. and we were able to address them either in the meeting or afterwards. Exactly. That bears meaning for something, a conversation I had with a remote working expert last week. And she said that fully remote companies, one of the things that they do really, really well, and I'm sure that you would, you would agree to this in, in your role in academia, is that documentation, note-taking is critical. So once you have an interaction with a student, with a colleague, with a client or whatever, is recording that chat, recording the interaction, recording the and following the process and the documentation. And that builds trust, which then builds to better relationships. And so it's like a virtuous circle, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah, I've seen uh, in sort of in board meetings, uh, having those recorded actually gives a very good, you know, record of what actually was said, how people voted and so forth. Just getting back to your book, you wrote about the SMART criteria for every request you make. What, what are the, the SMART criteria for making requests? Yeah, so we found that um, an effective request is one that's formulated using those five SMART criteria. Um, so a SMART request, uh, it's different than, this, than the SMART criteria for goals. Uh, yeah. I could go through them very quickly. S is for specific. You want to ask for something specific, a, a resource you need, uh, information, data, a referral, a connection, but you want to ask specifically for something. And a general request won't get much help. Yep. In fact, the most general request I ever heard was from an executive from the Netherlands. And he said, my request is for information. <laughs> that was it. And so I said to him, I said, can you elaborate? And he said, no, it's confidential. I can't say anything more. Well, he got no help whatsoever, of course. He was actually generous, helped other people, but it's the specific request that triggers people's memories of what they know and who they know. Those are the two ways that, that you can help. The M, and this is very different than the M for smart goals. M is measurable here. Yeah. M is meaningful. It's the why of the request. And you should never assume that people know why the request is important or meaningful, people really don't know until you tell them. So it's very important to, to say why you're making this request. And then the A is for action. You're asking for something to be done. So a goal is not a request. A goal is a destination. A request is, an, is asking for something to be done to help you make progress towards achieving that goal. Uh, the R is for strategically realistic uh, so I encourage people to make big requests. I've seen amazing, incredible requests fulfilled, but also small requests, as long as they're authentic and genuine. But whatever it is, it's got to be within the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. And then the T is time. There needs to be a deadline for the request. And here, a specific deadline is much more helpful than a general one. So if I say sometime by the end of this year, it's not as motivating as if I say, you know, I really need it by the end of July and here's why. That sounds good. I'm aware of smart goal seeking, but I, I was pretty sure when I asked the question, I knew you were going to have something, a different spin on it. <laughs> <laughs> you validated my thinking. I was like, he's not going to go smart objectives, clearly. <laughs> when I asked you a couple of questions before the, I, I sent out a pre-interview questionnaire and I asked you what one decision, thought or action changed your life forever and set you on a path to being a better version of you. 
Can you talk us through that one decision that made you your better you? You know, that's interesting in terms of what I wrote. I've been thinking about it. There's a number of different decisions I've made that I think have really made a difference. Yeah. Um, but I think career-wise, the one I'm focusing on right now, I just I remember my old advisor who passed away a number of years ago was an incredible man. So when you get your PhD, you have to have a, a formal advisor as well yep. as a committee. And he served on over 100 different dissertation committees in his career, which is, I think, must be a world's record. You know, if you've done a dozen, that's been a lot. And people sought him out because it was really about you. It wasn't about him. He really wanted you to develop professionally and personally. Uh, he was supportive, critical when he needed to be, and so forth, and really made, um, he was a role model for me. He really helped me to become, I think, a much better professor and even a husband and father because of the way he modeled a good supportive mentoring relationship. Picking him, that's what, I, that's what I'm thinking of now as the, one of the key decisions. Because he put his students first. Is that the same, same advisor that put his students first? That's right. He was like your Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you know, you think, you know, because, you know, there are some, uh, some advisors who uh, will say, okay, yeah, I'll work with you, but you're going to work on my project. Yeah, I'm going to carve out a little piece for you that will be your dissertation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my advisor really wanted you to, to do your own work that, was, that you truly owned and developed. You would have support, but no one would ever question who really did the work. And your PhD was in sociology, right? That's right. Yeah. What, you know, so that was another, I would say that's another turning point for me because my undergraduate degree is in finance. Yeah. And, uh, and I switched to a sociology. Usually people do it the other, I tell people I, get, I got confused. Usually hmm. people do it the other way around. You get a, an undergraduate degree in sociology, you can't get a job, and then you go right. to business school and get a graduate. But uh, I, loved, I loved doing, uh, studying finance. I thought it was really interesting. But I have to say that I, would, I remember a class, this was the turning point. I had a real estate investment uh, class, and I really liked the class a lot. But one student raised his hand and really challenged the professor. So this is like when I was like a senior in college. And he said, you know, you're teaching us about real estate laws, but by the time we graduate, it's all going to be outdated. They're going to change. So this is a worthless class. Yeah. And so the professor, you know, he was using back chalk back then on the chalkboard. He took the chalk, he threw it down. He looked at the guy in the eye and he said, he said, listen, he said, if you think you're here to learn facts and figures about business, you're sadly mistaken. You're here to prove that you're a conformist and that will you do anything that's asked of you. It was like the whole, you could have heard a pin drop and it was like, and I thought that's when I started to become a sociologist because I thought, wait a minute, I thought I was here to learn the facts and figures, but he's telling me I'm learning how to be a conformist. I went, wow, maybe something else is going on here. Maybe yeah. things aren't the way they seem. Mm -hmm. There's something underneath the surface here. And that was the beginning of becoming a sociologist. And what did you do your dissertation in? What was the subject? Well, yeah, uh, thank you for asking. It was, it was actually turned out to be a good mix of both finance and sociology. So I did a study of stock options trading in Chicago, where I was able to get data on uh, who was trading with whom when they were trading these stock options and used what's called network analysis in order to reconstruct the market, kind of as a network of buying and selling, yeah. and showed first time that that had ever been done. Uh, very lucky to get that kind of data, and actually showed how it was related to 
the volatility of prices, whether prices would swing a lot or not, uh, depended in part upon how those networks of trading were organized. So okay. it was the beginning of what became a field called um, economic sociology. Okay. The two divergent uh, fields melted into one. Yep. Yeah, it's like I had a, a psychology, social psychology professor who said that uh, innovation arises where two fields overlap like the scales of a fish. And he actually wrote an article called The Fish Scale Theory of Innovation. I'm, I'm thinking of the metaphor and I'm going, okay, yeah, yeah, could work. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Speaking of psychology, you say uh, the one thing that you do that really enhances your productivity is meditation. Talk to me a little bit about that. I've recently started meditating myself. I've bought the Calm app. I'm by no means enlightened or a yogi or, you know, wearing, you know, <laughs> special clothes or anything like What is it about meditation that enhances, what, what does it do to you? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a kind of um, centering, um, a way of caring for yourself. Yep. You know, I, I can get pretty wound up with my work and, you know, I can get a little too intense sometimes. Sure. And I kind of found that, you know, I need to, um, you know, I realized this a little over a year ago that I really needed to kind of center myself more. And actually it was my, my physician reckon, recommended uh, meditation and put me in touch with a meditation coach here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, who's done a lot of coaching. She's worked on research studies about it. And so I learned from her. It was really, really very helpful. So, um, you know, I meditated this morning, for example. I rarely uh, have missed a day, and sometimes I do it two times a day. If I do it guided, there's a number of the, some tracks that are very helpful on SoundView. Yeah. Uh, the, apps, the apps where where people are talking all the time while you're meditating, I find a little distracting. But, you know, sometimes I just meditate without any listening to a recording or anything. I just will, you know, set aside 15, 20 minutes or so and, and do it. Yeah. What's your sweet spot in terms of time? I'd say 15 minutes. I've got to do at least 15 minutes to feel like I'm, you know, that I feel different. I actually can feel, you know, bodily changes. My hands will be warmer. I'll feel more settled. I can feel that my heart rate is lower. But you, uh, it could take 15 minutes to do that. But sometimes I'll, you know, I'll do longer. And do you sit in the lotus pose or how do you, how do, you do it? No, nah, my knees won't let me sit in the lotus pose. <laughs> no, I just, I just sit in a comfortable chair, you know, with my hands in my lap and using my, my head just bowed a little bit. I find to have my eyes fully closed helps. Yeah. And, you know, in a darkened room is good and without a lot of distractions like people walking by or, yeah. you know, your phone ringing. And so I, I make sure my computer is off, for example, when I meditate. I'm in my sound studio because I do voiceovers as well. I'm a voice artist and part-time actor, but I find my sound studio is quite nice because it's sound treated. So no sound comes in. And also when I, if, if I click my fingers, there's no echo. So, and it's also black. So it's, it's kind of perfect for lying on my, I've got a couch behind me as well. So sometimes I sit there and, and yeah, know, catch yeah. a breath. In terms of your other books, how you've, you've written four books, right? Uh, six. Six. I'm on Goodreads and it says four, but anyway, it doesn't matter. So, yeah. So the reason is, is that a couple of them are very academic books written for a highly specialized audience. Right. Um, and they wouldn't show up under Goodreads. Um, so there's, so I've written everything from 
data-heavy, analysis-heavy, lots of statistics books published by Princeton University Press, you know, for a very specialized audience to a book that is intended for a very, very broad general audience, like my latest one, All You Have to Do Is Ask. Yeah. Um, and I, I like the book length format. I, I tell people who are writing their first book that that's the hardest one because you don't know you can write a book, you know, but once you've written your first one, you know you can write a book. Doesn't mean the others will be good, but at least you know you can complete the project. Yeah. Because it's a different way of, of thinking, but I like that kind of format. Yeah. And, it, and with this one, you know, I really believe in the, me- the message of it. I've seen it make such a positive difference in people's lives with my business school students, with executives that I've worked with. And so what I've been doing ever since the book came out is to, you know, taking all the opportunities I can to really spread the word about it. So that's one reason why I so appreciate being on your program uh, is to let people know about it. In fact, you also should know that I have a lot of free resources that are available. Okay. So people don't have to buy the book in order to benefit from a lot of it. Uh, So if you go to the book website, all you have to do is ask.com. There's a free assessment. There's a learning map. There's articles, a whole lot of stuff you can download for free. Okay. All you have to do is ask.com by Wayne Barker, Professor Wayne Barker. We've got to reemphasize that so in case somebody's listening and they've sped up, <laughs> sped up the playback, they can, uh, they can maybe get it. <laughs> I'm conscious of time, Wayne. So in closing, what is your one ninja communication tip for, for people out there if they are struggling to connect virtually? What's the one ninja Wayne Barker tip that you can that you can leave with them. Yeah, I would say take some time to think about what is it that you really need, what would be really helpful, and then have the courage to reach out and to ask for it. And you could do it in a in a group, you could do it one-on-one, maybe connect with what we call your a dormant connection. That would be someone that you had a relationship with years ago, but your lives have gone in different directions. Uh, But find a way to reconnect and uh, not be afraid to ask for whatever you need, even if it's someone to just to talk to casually or someone to share your, you know, your concerns and your worries or, and then also look for opportunities to help other people, you know, and that could be a big thing or a small, a small thing, but to make yourself available to others. In the reciprocity ring. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thanks very much, Wayne, for being on my show. For those of you listening, he's got his new book out. All you have to do is ask how to master the most important skills for success. I wish you all the success for your book and upcoming books and in your career. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, please listen on any one of your favorite podcasting channels like iTunes, Spotify, or Anchor.fm. If you would like to be interviewed or need more information, please email me at alistair at jabber.io. That's A-L-I. S-T-A-I-R at J-A-B-B-A dot I-O. Cheers.